This is At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition at NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming up, we take a historical turn in the home of gambling, Elko, Nevada. We talk with, boom, boom, Richard Belzer about his first novel. And we're serenaded by the one and the only Sir Tom Jones. Where did Las Vegas come from? An idea that you could have a place where the normal rules of life just don't apply. Sure, Atlantic City, Reno, and dozens of casino towns have come along in more recent times, but they've all kind of been inspired by the cocktail of gambling and showbiz, first mixed in a little town about 430 miles north of Las Vegas. Hal Cannon of the Western Folklife Center traces the model to its very beginnings. You might think that this story begins somewhere along the Las Vegas Strip just after the war and that it might include Bugsy Siegel and the mob. I thought so, too. But it actually begins here, 430 miles north of Las Vegas, in the town of Elko, Nevada. Elko started the big bands and the big shows. We started it here before Vegas ever started it. Diz Puccinelli's boss first had the brainstorm to bring top-notch entertainers into his casino. It all began in April of 1941 with the famous band leader Ted Lewis. The room was darkened, and here comes Ted Lewis out, and the spotlight is on him. Of all the people in this lonesome old world. Morris Gallagher remembers that opening night. Well, he was a true showman, you know, and... Uh, the song was me in my shadow uh, going down the avenue. Rolling down the avenue. We had never seen anything like that here in Elko. And Nevada was about the only place Morris Gallagher and his friends could have witnessed history being made that evening in their little high desert cowboy town of 5,000 people. Back in the dark days of the Depression, Nevada, like the rest of the country, was suffering. A stalled economy, threadbare people shuffling down the streets, depression had become a state of mind. Oh, somebody do something for me. Come get me. Nevada was in the middle of nowhere, and being rescued just wasn't in the cards. So in 1931, the state's legislature came up with the idea of legalizing gambling. A poker-faced hotel owner, Newt Crumley, was just one of scores around the state who applied for a gaming license. But it was Crumley's big, handsome son, Newt Jr., who really wanted to make their hotel, the commercial, into something bigger than a backroom poker parlor. And then he realized the answer lay right outside his door. The main rail line connecting east to west ran within spitting distance of the commercial. Everyone, including traveling entertainers, whizzed right through Elko without stopping. So Newt Jr. figured if he could get the big stars off the train, he could draw big crowds to gamble. So he offered Ted Lewis the outlandish amount of $12,000 to perform that first week in 1941. It was a wager that paid off in more ways than one. Diz Puccinelli. Some of those entertainers would come in here and they might end up on Newt before they left because they would gamble. So he did pretty well off of it. Ted 
townspeople remember that by the time World War II was over, the biggest names in show business were headlining at Crumley's Casino. Guy Lombardo, Sophie Tucker, Chico Marx. We had Tennessee Ernie Ford, and then Vicki Carr, and Frankie Yankovic. <laughs> Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, uh, Spike Jones a couple of times. And I remember Xavier Cugat, and he carried a little I think, Mexican chihuahua. And these folks didn't just perform for the gamblers. Crumley's contract stipulated that they had to perform for the community, including shows for the local high school kids. Ann Nisbet was there. I can remember Anna Marie Alberghetti and all of these kids would come in and we'd squish up on the floor and sit, and she was a great singer. People came to Elko from Boise, Salt Lake City, and everywhere in between, including Charlie Chester. He drove from the mining town of Ely, Nevada, almost 200 miles away. My first wife, Rose, and I danced all the time. You know, she weighed 225 pounds. She was a heavy woman. And I had to ask for dancers because everybody wanted to dance with her. She just had that rhythm, and when she grabbed a hold and you grabbed a hold of her, you could just glide away. And next guy I'd get her before I could get to her, and I'd have to ask her for a dance. He'd bring in shows, but they had to be clean shows, very clean. And if they weren't, he'd fire them. Diz Puccinelli, Newt Crumley's bookkeeper from 1946 to 1949. I remember one was Red Fox, and the first night that he was on, he got a little risque in his performance, and Newt fired him right then and there. After that, he made me go down to the hotel every time there was a new show to see how it was. And if we didn't keep him, then he'd fire him and I'd pay him off. While some performers weren't invited back to Elko, others became attached to the place and its people. This was a time when America was redefining itself, and no other figure was as iconic as the cowboy. Mimi Ellis grew up in Elko where her father owned a competing casino. She says it wasn't just the money that drew the stars. It was something else. Authenticity. Everyone was who he was, and they didn't apologize for it. It was real. The cowboys were real. The gaming was real. It had all the characteristics of the Old West. Oh, I've been doing a lot of things. I ran into these folks in Missouri. I thought maybe I might try my hand at farming or ranching if I can find me some cattle. They make good biscuits, these folks. You're going to like them. Jimmy Stewart finally got that ranch. His daughter, Kelly Harcourt, talks about what drew him to Elko County. Dad liked the guys who worked on the ranch. They were real cowboys, you know, people named Tuffy and Coldwater Bill. <laughs> and I think he liked being around people who were working close to the land. Stewart's Wine Cup Ranch was over 500 square miles of open country. All of us remember it as just this paradise because we did things there that we never did anywhere else. I mean, the landscape was so beautiful and that sort of vast uh, vistas and these huge skies. It was so different than Beverly Hills. Jimmy Stewart wasn't the only one looking for a little ranch way out west. Gene Peterson remembers one hot summer afternoon when he saw a man and a boy traipsing down the road of his family ranch. Who in the devil is this out here this time of day? And they had a flat tire in this old Ford truck down there about a quarter of a mile from the ranch house. And I didn't really recognize him, to be honest with you. 
went and helped him, got his tire changed and got him going. Well, it was banging one of his boys. Lord of mercy, I didn't know. <laughs> I'm just a kid, you know. Well, we moved to Elko County about a dozen years ago. We bought a ranch down on the river when the river was nice and low. Bing Crosby eventually owned seven ranches in Elko, including Peterson's family ranch. Uncle Bing was a working cattle rancher. Uh, didn't just sit back in the office and give orders. He was out there in his shaps and boots, doing the whole thing, helping to mend fence or brand cattle, whatever needed to be done. Bing's niece, Carolyn Schneider, visited the Crosbys often in Elko. Bing was determined to teach his four sons the cowboy work ethic. But at the end of the day, he also liked coming to town. People would see him on the street, hi, Bing. Oh, hi there, Dorothy, how are you? You know, it was just very casual. They didn't make a fuss over him. Bing himself is quoted as saying, I love these folks, and he really did. Bing made a lot of friends, including his hunting buddy, Newt Crumley. I'll be singing sweetly, Lanny, while Newt's sitting on his fanny counting up my dough. People loved sitting near him at the local Catholic Mass just to hear him croon the hymns. Bing got so involved in the community that in 1948 he was named Elko's honorary mayor. How do you do, everybody? This is Marshall Small speaking to you from the lounge of the Commercial Hotel in Elko, Nevada. And sitting on my left, I have the one and only Bing Crosby, who is in Elko this afternoon. How does it feel to be honorary mayor of Elko? Well, I'm deeply flattered, of course, that the good people of Elko think that much of me, that they want to place the reins of the city government in my hands if it's only in an honorary capacity. I don't anticipate any work. I just want to sit around and take a few bows. And as long as I'm the mayor, I like this place. I'll get my jack back if I must. Your crooked black deck, Elko, Nevada. I'll stay right here. The commercial hotel and casino is still open in downtown Elko, but the live entertainment is gone except for a few diehards making a cacophony of digital slot machine music. By the time Newt Crumley sold the commercial 50 years ago, Vegas had far outglitzed Elko. Still, it's tempting to close your eyes and imagine those big bands, the dancers gliding around the floor, and Bing Crosby's baritone voice echoing here on his home on the range. For NPR News, I'm Hal Cannon. Oh, give me a mansion where we don't do no ranching, where the dudes and the tender feet play. How they love to play. Where seldom you hear someone roping a steer, and the dance floor is crowded all day. It's all in the criminal justice system, Richard Belzer has played Detective John Munch on television for more than 15 years. And on 10 different shows, from Homicide Life on the Street to The Wire, Arrested Development, and, of course, several different flavors of law and order, he's become so well-known as Munch, police cars will slow down to offer him a lift, and sometimes he'll take it. Here is his story. Richard Belzer's now applied whatever lessons you can learn about law enforcement by playing a cop to produce his first novel. It's called I Am Not a Cop, which is co-authored with Mike Black. Richard Belzer joins us from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's great. I'm, I love that introduction. Thank you. That's what I was hoping you'd say that. Good. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just this thing is so universally recognizable, the uh, law and order. I 
call it the uh, Dick Wolf cash register sound. <laughs> Every time you hear that, it means he's making more money. Well, now— Not that it's bad. And making some money for everyone who works for him, too, yes, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Now, didn't—not uh, a cop, of course, but didn't someone surrender to you once? Well, when I was filming Homicide in Baltimore, we were filming a scene in an alleyway uh, with police cars. Of course, they were prop cars and actors dressed as police officers. I had my bulletproof vest on, my badge on a chain around my neck. I was carrying a, a gun. We were rehearsing a, an arrest scene. And a real shoplifter ran around the corner onto the set. And he dropped the bag he was carrying and threw up his arms and surrendered to me. And then he said, oh, expletive, munch. <laughs> and a real um, security guard ran around the corner and tackled him and arrested him. It was funny because the guy had stolen Q-tips and film. So this is Q-tips not exactly top cappy. Yeah, know? yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But that made me start me thinking about the uh, convergence of celebrity and reality. Particularly in America, the making celebrities out of virtually everyone. Patty Chayefsky's um, network really was so ahead of its time. What was that, 1976? He predicted that the entertainment divisions would take over the news divisions, and he predicted reality shows, and, you know, it's just, uh, we're living it now. Well, well, let's set up the premise of your novel a bit, because it's, sure. it's a character with your name who gets, right. who gets caught up in a case. He's having a dinner one night in Brighton Beach, I guess. I fictionalize my own life. And I've always been uh, a huge fan of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and James Kane and and uh, filmed more. So that's one of my favorite things is the counterculture, outsider, renegade guy who usually used to be a cop, then becomes a detective. But in my book, I'm, I'm calling it a meta-reality novel where I take my life and I slightly fictionalize it and I create this world where uh, I have a friend who's a Russian uh, immigre who came here. He's a very smart doctor who was a medical examiner. We meet, have dinner, and after dinner, he's mysteriously attacked by these two Russian thugs, and I dispatch them very artfully. And then he disappears, and I get caught up in it. And along the tradition of um, Hitchcock and and uh, Hammett, you know, where the 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 hero, the so-called hero is pursued by everyone and is trying to, you know, he's fighting the police, he's fighting the Russian mob, uh, he's fighting his own studio. So um, I, I like that kind of thing where the reader is with the protagonist. And another thing I really like is mm-hmm. voiceover and narration. Um, so I get to do that in the novel. I talk to the reader. Can you make portrayals of, uh, of Russian organized crime figures mm-hmm. these days that you can't about Italians and Sicilians? I'm tired of uh, Italian gangsters. Not that I don't watch The Godfather every morning when I get up um, and Goodfellas when I go to sleep at night. (laughs) But I've just always been fascinated by Russia as a country, by the Russian personality. And now Russia is literally a gangster nation. For them to spill over here, Mm -hmm. um, I think, is much more realistic than the the cartoon, um, you know, Arab terrorist. Has your character, John Munch, changed over the years, or how has he changed? I think in some subtle ways, he's, you know, he's become even more paranoid and more distrustful and more uh, of a dissident. Mm-hmm. When, when we first did the part in Baltimore, a homicide, I wasn't quite sure how radical my character was. So um, in, that, in the first season of Homicide, 
think I really got a grasp of who he was. I also met the detective who I'm loosely based on. That was really a, a great experience for me because he kind of looks a little bit like me, and um, he is a legend in Baltimore because he would come upon a crime scene and, you know, like somebody would be decapitated and the guy killed his whole family and there's blood everywhere, and he would do a joke, you know, gallows humor. Oh. And a lot of police departments love to have the court jester in amongst them because what they see is so nonverbal and so horrific and so soulless that mm -hmm. uh, someone comes in and cracks a joke it's like oh thanks a lot I mean and I think that's why my character has such legs as we say in the business and has been able to last so long is because I serve a function I think Munch is, is the spice that's much needed in that environment uh, May I ask is BB with you? Bebe. Bebe. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is Bebe is not, and everyone's asking me that whenever I'm, my, we're talking about my dog, yeah. who I bring to work with me, who travels all over the world with me. And it's funny now, when I go to premieres or openings, uh, the reporters on the red carpet go, Bebe, look over here. Bebe, they don't care about me anymore. Now, now forgive me for, for not knowing, but what breed is Bebe? Bebe is a poodle fox terrier that was a stray dog. I live in France part-time, mm -hmm. and this is a a dog that was wandering around the village and followed our other dog home. Our other dog is a Border Collie mix, and Bebe's a little dog, and the little dog tried to mount the big dog, which was very funny and exhibited incredibly good taste. <laughs> so uh, we, we kept Bebe. <laughs> <laughs> Fits right into the family, is it? Yeah, really? yeah. No, they're a comedy team now, my two dogs. They're amazing. Richard, a delight. Sure. Thanks very much. I am not a cop. <laughs> I, I've heard. <laughs> Boy, well, I'm glad we could finally get that clear for, okay, for millions buddy. of people. <laughs> Richard Belcher, known to millions as Detective John Munch's new book and novel, I Am Not a Cop. We now know who some of the people who will be on the Obama team will be when he's president, but there is an important appointment yet to be made. The puppy the president-elect promised to give his daughters which might, he said after his victory speech, be a mutt. Now, this prompted a happy outcry from animal rescue people who were hoping to get a mutt commitment from the Obamas. Our animal rescue reporter, Alice Furlow, has these thoughts. Every presidential election since 1992, I've done a commentary on the candidate's pets. This year, I couldn't do my usual story because the Obamas had no pets. Maddening. It was such fun reporting on the pets in the old presidential campaign days. My first report was in 1992, when Sox, the Clinton's cat, still lived in the governor's mansion in Arkansas. The host of All Things Considered began my story by saying I'd been disappointed by one of the presidential debates. Among those paying very close attention to last night's presidential debate was commentator Alice Furlow. While she was glad to hear the candidates address the issues, she noticed they were absolutely silent on a subject she deems mightily important. Bill Clinton's cat, name of Socks. I remember how frosty the Clinton's press representative in Little Rock was on the subject of Socks. We do not discuss Socks, she said. I ended my commentary that year saying that as Socks was a true down-home feline American, she should bring to the White House the deep inner peace which fosters wise decisions. The Clintons wisely decided to give socks to the secretary, Betty Curry, when they left the White House. 
He had secretly been her office cat all along. Socks is 18 years old now, still living with Betty Curry on Maryland's eastern shore. Mrs. Curry often gives lectures, accompanied by Socks himself. The George H.W. Bush press office in 1992 was as unfriendly as the Clinton people had been in Little Rock. Not a single cat in the White House, he said, even in the kitchen. But then the Bush's pedigreed Springer Spaniel Millie had written that book talking about things like family, faith, and friends. That year, candidate Ross Perot had said, I wouldn't trust George Bush to take care of my cat for the weekend. To get details about this cat, I called Tracy, a staff member in Dallas. She said, Mr. Perot had a cat, but she passed away this summer. What was her name, I asked. Honey. What color was she, I asked. Tracy replied rather uncertainly, honey-colored. The year 2000 was my favorite presidential pet year, and Pat Buchanan was my favorite pet lover. Twenty minutes after I'd left a message at his campaign headquarters asking about Gipper, his cat, Mr. Buchanan called me back. I warned him that my tape recorder was broken. He didn't care. He started pouring out so much heartfelt detail about Gipper that I could hardly get a question in edgewise. Gipper had been a wedding present from the Buchanan's matron of honor. She bought him for $37.50, Buchanan told me, clearly implying that this was an incredibly low price for this magnificent animal. John McCain had the most pets of any candidate that year, 31, if you count the king's snake and the gecko. All four McCain cats were declawed, which might have cost him some votes. One cat, Oreo, is alive and well today. And in 2000, George W. Bush nearly won my heart when he kept saying he missed his three cats on his campaign bus. He never said he missed his wife and children, just the cats. But after the Iraq invasion, President Bush, interviewed by Barbara Walters, accompanied by his dog Barney, said, I'm a dog person. Laura is a cat person. See, pets can show you changes in powerful people. And now the hopes and fears of all us animal rescue folks are focused on the Obama dog. If it turns out to be a needy, mixed-breed pooch, it will be the second of its kind to live in the White House. The first was Loki, Lyndon Johnson's little white three-legged mutt. Lucy Johnson had found Loki abandoned at a gas station and brought him to Washington. I once asked Lucy about Loki in his White House days. She told me, that dog gave my father unconditional love. I'm sure that will be true of any dog the Obamas finally choose. For NPR News, I'm Alice Furlow. I've always wanted to say these words. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Jones. She's a
Don't you want to be loved by anyone? It's not unusual to have fun with anyone. Sir Tom is what to call him now, and he's back with a somewhat new sound, but that same rafter rattling voice. The world's best-known Welshman. Well, there's also Catherine Zeta-Jones, Richard Burton, Dylan Thomas, and Anthony Hopkins, but no mind, released his first album in 1965, and since then he has sold more than 100 million records around the world and been knighted. His new album, 24 Hours, is his first U.S. studio release in more than 15 years. Sir Tom Jones joins us from NPR West. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. I'm I'm intrigued by uh, your choice of producers uh, for this album because uh, it's produced by Future Cut. Yes, and of course they're known for working with Estelle and Kate Nash, young pop stars in in, in Britain. What were you uh, What were you looking for by choosing them? Um, well, I wanted to to get with somebody that, um, that that was on the same wavelength as myself. And when I met them, uh, they said uh, they would like to. Uh, get the essence of of things that I'd recorded in in the sixties, uh, you know, but with a with a modern sound. But they liked a lot of the brass uh, things that I that I had done on my early recordings. So one of the songs that, for instance, one of the songs that we recorded now is called uh, "If He Should Ever Leave You," which was sampled from um, a record that I did called "I'll Never Let You Go." I'll buy you diamond rings. I'll give you pretty things to prove. Brass in, at the beginning is, is identical. And they, you know, they liked that. So they wanted to do things like that, which, which I was all for. And they had some tracks already laid down. Mm-hmm. So what I uh, realized was I had to get with some songwriters and write songs to, uh, to go along with some of these tracks that they'd already uh, laid down. And how did Bono come to write a song for you? A song called Sugar Daddy. Sugar Daddy, yes. We were in uh, Dublin, and uh, I was in a club with him, having a drink. And I asked him, would he, would he write me a song? And he said he would love to. But if he did, he would like it to be about me. So he asked me a lot of questions about um, growing up in Wales, you know. And, um, you know, what did I do before I got into show business? And so that, that line is there, uh, you got to get your hands dirty when you're digging a ditch. You know, because I told him that I, that I used to dig ditches as well. You gotta get your hands dirty when you dig in a ditch. And boredom has got revenge on the rich. Got the money, got the moves. Got the looks and the breaks. Got the shirt, got the shoes. Got what it takes. He liked the way I looked when, when, when he was a kid and he used to see me on television, you know, with, with the shirt and the shoes and like that. So those things are in there. So information I was giving him, he was uh, he was using. Got to tell you, the whole idea of, of Sir Tom Jones and Sir Bono mm. in a pub having a drink. Mm-hmm. I, first, it raises the question: So you only go drinking with other with other people who've been knighted? <laughs> no, no. It was a, this was a nightclub, though. I think it's been documented that it was a pub, but it was actually a, a nightclub called Lily Bordellos. Oh, okay. In, in Dublin, classy place, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it's very classy. The show must go on. What else can it do? 
Sir Tom, we uh, we asked some of our listeners to uh, to give us some questions, and, and would you mind answering a few of them for us? Not at all. First is from uh, Tony Kay of Seattle, Washington. Hello, Sir Tom. I had the great pleasure of meeting you 19 years ago after a wonderful show at the Paramount Theater, and you were incredibly gracious. It was a pleasure. Um, my question involves your duet album, Reload. I think it's a terrific record and one of my personal favorites, and I was wondering... Uh, what artists you would like to share a microphone with today? Thank you very much. There's a bunch of people that are, that are around that that I haven't sung with as, as yet. Uh, Whitney Houston, I think, is a great singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody came up with the with the, with a good song, I think we could we could sing it together, you know, really well. And um, I like Alicia Keys. I like uh, Duffy, mm-hmm. who's a Welsh singer, and uh, Amy Winehouse. You know, she, if she ever pulls herself together. I thought, so you have to get her between, between, yeah, yeah. between spells. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. And there's another girl called Adele that is uh, that is making some noise now in uh, in England. So there's there's a lot of good voices around, I think, that uh, with the right song. You know, with duets, though, you, you have to find the song first. And, and the other person has to really want to do that. Uh, Sir Tom, before we get to our next question, you uh, you were very sick as a child, weren't you? Yeah, I, I had the tuberculosis from the age of 12 to 14. I was bedridden for two years. Sometimes it takes an illness like that to really make you aware that health does not come easy. You know, it's not yeah. cheap. But when you have good health, you see, you don't, you don't think about it. And a lot of kids growing up, if they, if they don't get sick, they never experience it. So they take it, a lot of people take it for granted. Yeah. But when you do get sick like that, you think, my God. I mean, I remember there was a lamppost at the end of our street. And um, I used to see the kids playing around the lamppost there, and, and I, I used to think to myself, my God, when, when, I'm ab- when I'm able to walk to that lamppost, I'll never complain about anything again as long as I live. It was a, and I've never forgotten that. You know, it's, yeah. it's stuck with me all the time. We have something I, I, uh, I think you'll like hearing this comment from Sandy Spellman of Texarkana, Texas. Hi, Scott and Tom. My husband and I love your new CD, 24 Hours. We have been to several of your concerts, and no matter what mood people are in when they walk in, they always leave with a big smile. What I want to know is, what puts a really big smile on your face? (laughs) Uh, Well, (laughs) seeing the people walk out with big smiles on their faces, that's what makes me smile. I mean, that's, that's uh, that's the best part of the day for me, is really, is being on stage. I love to sing, and I, and I love, you know, I love getting across to the people. It's, it's like a giant pat on my back yeah. when, when they're getting it and they're really digging it, and, and that's, that's what puts a smile on my face. Uh, let, let's go to a question now from uh, Ellen Sterling from Las Vegas. Hi, Sir Tom. I wanted to know if there's a question you wish interviewers would stop asking you, and <laughs> is there one you've never been asked but would like to answer? Uh... <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, but me bringing it up, you see, would bring it up then. But I think yeah, I know what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Even if she doesn't, yeah. It's the underwear thing, you know, that right. um, that people keep asking me about. That that I think it's uh, you know it's become a joke and and it's not it's not really what I'm all about. You know, it's not. I would prefer to be asked, people throwing underwear. At underwear, you on yes, stage, yes. Yeah. Sorry, yes, throwing. Underwear. They're not asking about your underwear necessarily. No, 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 no. Sorry, throwing underwear. You know, yeah. and uh, and that part and that happened. You know, it started a long time ago with room keys and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I, 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 I never thought that um, that my image would overpower my talent. Mm-hmm. But the thing that got me onto the stage to begin with was the sound of my voice. 
So it's um, and I started sell, selling records before uh, the majority of people knew what I looked like. So it's 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 on the sound that I make really, and not the you know sometimes what what happens uh, on stage. So I can't think of anything that that I would want them to ask me that I haven't already answered. Yeah, I may ask you about this, Sir Tom. We um, we interviewed Dame Shirley Bassey mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year, another famous Welsh singer. Yes. Now, a lot of pop stars, as uh, as they get older, no names mentioned, uh, we record fine albums where they kind of reinterpret the classics and emphasize a softer, subtler side. Mm. But you Welsh folks, you and Dame Shirley, yep. you you just still love to bring out the voice and rattle the pans. And Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we're very similar, uh, Shirley and myself, because we do project, and I think we learned that uh, singing in, in pubs and clubs in Wales without microphones, you know, and, and you learn to project, and that never really leaves you. So uh, you, we can get tender at times, you know, but... Still like to belt out songs when when they need when they need to be belted out and and she feels the same way as as I do in that uh, respect. I was so struck by something uh, I read. You did an interview in the nineteen eighties and you said uh, that you dread the day you have to retire. Yes, I don't. I don't want to retire. Mm-hmm. I'm not frightened of growing older. It's not a thing that uh, I don't harp on the past and think, oh my God, I wish I was eighteen again. You know, it's it's not. Um, it's. I mean, I've had a wonderful life, and I'm still having one. But the only thing that um, that age is going to do is going to finally stop me from um, from singing, and and I'm not 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 looking forward to that. I'm not looking forward to to retirement when I won't be able to sing anymore. That that. I. But I hope I'm tired enough then not to be frustrated, you know, and think, my God, I wish I could still sing like I did. So um, I'm not. I'm not looking forward to that at all. Well, Sir Dom, take care of yourself and your voice, okay? Thank you. Hear the footsteps at my door I don't struggle anymore As I take my final breath I don't feel what lies ahead I'm leaving to a place where I'll see your face I had one moment 24 hours ago One moment 24 hours ago
For your thoughts and suggestions for At Your Leisure, please come to our blog, npr.org soapbox, or send us an email.